Well, good morning. You, all right. Thank you, Dan. Uh, if you have your Bibles, please open to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, that's page 840 on a blue uh, pew Bible if you uh, would like to follow along. Um, so uh, we are one quarter of the way through the book of Mark. Uh, if you're just joining us, we began preaching verse by verse through this gospel uh, back in January. Now we are uh, a quarter of the way through, and there are uh, many reasons why I just have loved uh, this series, what God's just doing to me personally through it, just wrecking me through the week, just trying to do what I can to flow that out on a Sunday morning. And um, one of the reasons why uh, I think I love Mark so much is because he powerfully captures the fact that the ministry of Jesus could be summarized in this phrase. It's not what you'd expect. I feel like week after week where I'm kind of walking through these stories and I'm just saying on repeat, um, and then this happened and it's not what you'd expect. And then this happened and it's not what you'd expect. And these kind of familiar stories in the Gospels that we often hear kind of one-off and detached, to see them just back to back to back, it just beautifully captures this paradox. Uh, that, that's one of the big themes in the book of Mark. It's just, it's just this paradox, and, and I think it captures the, the paradoxical nature of the incarnation itself, right? Of God taking on flesh. Man, we've been, in, a lot of us have been in church in so long that that just seems normal to us. Like, that's not normal. Like, Jesus taking on a human nature. He's existed for all of eternity, and now he becomes one of us. You kind of read throughout the scriptures, and you get to that point, and you go, wow, I didn't see that one coming. It's not what you would expect, and I think we just love that unpredictable nature because it keeps us dialed in. We, we love that in books, and we love that in Netflix series. When, when something happens and we go, wow, I didn't see that coming. It just kind of keeps you wanting more, keeps you reading, keeps you watching. And nowhere is that irony more pronounced than it was on that first Palm Sunday. Like, what a scene that must have been where, where Jerusalem is packed with over a million people, like it was every Passover, and in rides Jesus to a ticker tape parade, except with palms. Crowds hailing, Hosanna, here comes the king, like a wild celebration. And, and from our perspective, it, it, it gets kind of overshadowed by the fact that just a few short days later, that same man would be abandoned by everyone as he suffered and died on a cross. Like the irony in that. Like, like, yes, he is a king, but he's not the king you were expecting. Jerusalem, he will wear a crown, but it's not a crown with gold and diamonds, but of thorns. A, an image that, again, I think AJ has done such a great job capturing in our Mark graphic that this, this crown ends up being a crown of thorns. It's not what you'd expect. And that theme began in chapter 1, and we just see it all throughout. And, and in many ways, it, it doesn't just foreshadow Holy Week, but it foreshadows the Christian life, where, where following Christ is a journey where you begin to expect the unexpected. And as we dig into the Word and begin chapter 5 this morning, my prayer is just with eager hearts that we would lean in together to see what God has for us this morning, because I guarantee you it won't be what you expect. So join with me. We're going to read the entire passage up front. This is Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. 
He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from the region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him, and he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. The power of Jesus, the power of Jesus, all over this passage, and we're, we're going to see kind of this pattern here of, of overpowering, of changing, and then of sending. That's where we're going this morning, overpowering, changing, and sending. And so first, Jesus overpowers evil. So coming off of last week, Jesus and his disciples go through this monster storm, do you remember? And Jesus, in a moment, just tells the storm to stop, and it stops. And we read that the disciples were left just kind of open mouth, just asking one another, who is this guy? Like, we thought we had a handle on him. We, we thought we were following him around. We thought we were boys with him, like he was one of us. What was that? And they keep on sailing until they get to the other side of the sea, and Mark tells us that they make sure in the country of the Gerasenes. It's within this larger region known as the Decapolis. And it's on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. Um, and it consisted of ten cities, right? Deca, ten. And, and the vast majority of these cities were Gentile, meaning non-Jewish. And this point on shore was on the outskirts of a town named Gadara, historically known to be the present-day location of Kersey National Park. And Mark never tells us why he came here in the first place. Why did he get in a boat and bring his guys to the Decapolis? But I think it's reasonable to think that Jesus wanted a little getaway from his disciples. With his disciples, I'm sorry, from the crowds, right? The crowds that were following him, he was teaching, he was getting mobbed. And I think he just said, let's get in a boat and let's go to a place that is not Jewish where people would not as easily recognize me. Or at least uh, lesser than the fact that he's been known in Galilee. And so um, he, he gets onto shore, and yet 
he steps on shore. Like the moment he steps on shore and he gets noticed. Mark says a man is there with an unclean spirit. And then there's this immediate recognition. But you notice it's recognition on both sides. So this man is far off and he comes running. But Jesus automatically knows who he is as well. Because we find that when this possessed man came to Jesus and begged him, Mark tells us Jesus was already saying to him, come out. Come out. He knew from the moment he saw him. They didn't need any introductions. He knew what was in this man, and he knew that he had to leave. And so he was telling him repeatedly, get out. And so I'll be honest, this passage is going to create some questions for us. Or if you read it, it's going to be like, now why, or what, or where? But while it brings some questions, it also brings some clarity. Some clarity between the nature of Jesus and the demonic realm. The, the, the clarity between good and evil that's in the world. Between God and Satan. And, and we, we saw this a little bit in chapter 1. A, a short story where Jesus drove out an evil spirit in Capernaum. But this is starting to help fill in the gaps. This is a little bit meatier for us to be thinking about good and evil. And, and I keep coming back to um, C.S. Lewis's take in his book, Screwtape Letters, I brought it up when we were in chapter one, that, that Satan wants one of two things when it comes to you viewing the demonic realm. He wants one of two things. He either wants obsession with it or complete neglect. He either wants you to be um, neglectful and ignorant to the demonic spiritual realm where, where you think, like, really, it's 2018, look at all around, like, we're going to talk about this now, demons. Like, that's a little silly, isn't it? Like, we're all adults here. And he just wants you to just be so, so ignorant to it so that his work can go unhindered. Or he wants you to be so consumed with it, so obsessed with it, that now you become a fertile ground for him to gain a foothold. And the Bible, praise God, it, it provides a pathway where we could avoid, avoid both. The Bible gives solid balance for us to settle into, namely that demons are real, there is a spiritual realm of good and evil, and that demons are powerless when compared to Jesus Christ. And so at this point, um, as we think about like, okay, unclean spirits and demon possession, I, I want to take just a couple minutes to, to make an important distinction. I've been praying over this as we've walked through this book, and I think now is as good as time as any to talk about it. That throughout the Gospel of Mark, we see Jesus teaching powerfully, and then all through Mark, we see really two things on repeat. We see Jesus healing sickness, and then we see him driving out demons. And Mark is very careful to distinguish between the two, which means this, that sickness and illness and demon possession are not the same thing. Yes, they both exist as a result of the fallen world. They, they both can be tools in which Satan uses to keep people blind to the saving knowledge of the gospel. But, but while all disease and all sickness is a result of fallen world and all demon possession, not every disease and not every sickness is a result of demon possession. You know what I'm saying? So if you got the flu this winter, like millions of other people, your first reaction was probably not like, oh man, I am possessed right now, I have the flu. <laughs> like, you, you were sick, you had an illness, and, and then you addressed it. And so I, I mentioned that to make this distinction with clarity. That 
mental illness and demon possession are not the same thing. And to take it further, that mental illness is not necessarily a spiritual problem any more than the flu is a spiritual problem. And yet the reality is that mental illness can carry a much higher stigma than physical illness, especially within the church. Which is why, sadly, the church is often far less to encourage and affirm the common grace of clinical treatment of medication for mental illness than we are for physical and I just don't think that should be the case. Like, we would never tell someone who has strep throat or gets cancer that they just need to pray a little bit harder. You, you just need to trust God more. Maybe you should try reading your Bible more. Have you tried that? And yet, it happens that when someone struggles with, with depression or anxiety or OCD or bipolar, oftentimes Christians are told, um, you just need a little stronger faith. And you wouldn't be dealing with that. So yes, let's pray and let's pray often for healing. But let's also seek treatment that God has provided through the common grace of modern uh, treatment, right? Those two are, are, are different things, but we can, we can pray like we often do physically for God to work through treatment like he does in such a way where we don't have to have this stigma that I, I, I shouldn't be open about mental illness in church because people are going to think I have weak faith. All right, so that was an aside Maybe I just ruffled some feathers, I don't know, but I wanted to just take some time to just point out that distinction that God's just been putting on my heart, that, that all throughout the Gospel of Mark, those two things are separate, illness and demon possession, and, and just contextualize that for our day. But back to the story. We have this setup, right, that Mark has given us. We have a powerful demon-possessed man confronting Jesus. And so we think, all right, here we go. The stage is set for a knockdown, blowout fight that's going to go the 12 rounds, right? Wrong. It's not what you'd expect. For, for the second straight week, we see a powerful force overpowered by the simple word of Jesus. You see what Mark is doing by putting the story of the storm and this one back to back? That that passage last week, it ended with a question. The disciples asked, who is this guy? And now, a few verses later, who is the one who answers it correctly? A demon. A demon comes up to him and says, I know who you are, Jesus, son of the most high God. The disciples are still a little unsure, but the demons know. They hate that which they know, but they know. And this demon is not calling this out to God as a way of admiration or a way of submission. He's doing it in hopes of derailing his ministry, of obstructing his work. But they know. And so Jesus just calls him out. He says, hey, what's your name? That's a scary phrase, right? Were you ever a little kid and you're playing around the neighborhood and somebody comes up and just goes, what's your name? And you're like, oh, no. Like, this guy knows my mommy and daddy. Like, I don't know about what to do right now. And Jesus just calls him out and he goes, what's your name? And the demon replies, legion, for we are many. The word legion was used to describe a unit of a Roman army that consisted of 6,000 soldiers. Doesn't necessarily mean that there were 6,000 demons in this man, but we know that there were many that had descended upon him for reasons unknown. But it speaks to the inhuman strength this guy had to resist everybody in the villages, to resist all the chains they tried to put on him. A whole village couldn't contain one man. 
because he was possessed by a legion of demons, and yet Jesus handles him in a moment without ever having to lay a hand on him. And then Jesus agrees to their request to be sent to the pigs, and, and they're driven out. They, they change hosts. They go to the pigs, and this whole herd of pigs, 2,000, immediately go jump off a cliff. We don't know why Jesus permits this. Why would he agree to their request? But to be honest, Mark, nor any of the other gospel writers who tell this story, really, they don't have an interest in telling us why. But the pigs jumping off the cliff at least confirms this, that demons' desire is to kill and destroy, to cause self-harm, and they don't give up until their host is dead. And that this is what this man was saved from. And so among other takeaways, one big one is that the confrontation between Jesus and the demons, the takeaway we ought to have is that we should be rest assured that Jesus is powerful. In today's culture of kind of mainstream Christianity, and we're going to see it all week, man. Everyone's going to be all about Jesus this week, aren't they? And, and, but here's what happens to Jesus in our current kind of mainstream culture. He often gets stripped of his power. Somewhere along the lines, Jesus got a makeover to look like a soft, non-confrontational man that, that kind of answers to us, right? And yeah, he might check in from time to time and just see how things are going, usually around Easter and Christmas. But he has little to no authority on how we actually think and how we actually live day to day. And that is a tragedy because it couldn't be further from the biblical truth that, yes, Jesus is caring and he is compassionate, but he is not weak. And now it's true that the Bible tells us that he became weak by taking on human flesh, and, and he became weak by willingly going to the cross to pay for the sins of mankind. But becoming weak is not the same as being weak. Jesus says about his own life in John chapter 10, no one takes it from me. But I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. Jesus becoming weak for the sake of giving his life for others is actually a sign of strength. And, and so he, he, here's maybe a little bit of a darker illustration to kind of show this. But, um, you know, yesterday we saw the March for Life and all the people just coming out to just want to talk about, hey, what are we doing as a society, especially for our young people? And, and we can all agree that anytime there's been a shooting, we all get that same lump in our throat, especially when there's kids involved. And and there's stories that come out often that where it was either a teacher or a mom and a dad or a husband that covers up somebody to shield the bullets and is killed while they protected somebody. That is not that they were weak that they died, right? They became weak. They became more vulnerable so that somebody else could live. And that is a far more of a sign of strength than of weakness. Man, I hope if I'm in that situation, that would be my reaction. I hope I'm strong enough to do that. And, and in the same way, like Jesus is not weak because he became weak. He became weak because he was so strong. Let us not strip Jesus of his power. This scene is a clear and abundant sign that, that any small view of Jesus will not stand. He shines and he wins in the darkest places, and there is no level of darkness that will not overcome him. Second, Jesus changes people. 
So he overcomes evil, and second, he changes people. And so uh, we, fist, we shift our focus from, from the demon who was driven out to now this man who was restored, this man with no name. How many of you love a good before and after comparison? Uh, HGTV has made a killing off before and after comparisons, right? Just show after show that they just keep rolling them out. We don't care. We're going to keep watching, right? Um, uh, flip or flop, fixer upper, property brothers. And the whole premise of here's this property, it stinks. Here's a half hour of work. And then at the end, here's this property, <laughs> it's awesome. And the end of the show is this, it pans to the before and it pans to the after. And we're all like, wow, it's amazing. Or if you see all over social media or TV, any fitness program or any pill that's supposed to make you shredded, right? They, they, they do before and afters. And to be honest, usually it's one guy sticking out his stomach in a very bright room. And then the next picture, he's sucking it in. He's oiled up in a dim room. And we're all like, wow, 19 days. And he looks like that. It's amazing. I could do that, right? Before and afters. We love it. It's all over. And, and, and here... The state of this man, where he was before Jesus came, to where he is after, is the biblical before and after. And it's probably the most dramatic, kind of immediate visual we get of just grace-fueled, Christ-centered transformation in the Bible. The place this guy was in was as sad as it gets. He was isolated from the rest of the village. He was written off by family and friends who just said, we just can't take it anymore, just send him to the tombs. And he was a living, a light that had spiraled out of control and was undoubtedly reaching its end. Screaming day and night, harming himself physically, acting out of a self-hatred that was spurred on by the demons inside him. This is the goal of the dark, demonic, spiritual realm to defile the image of God in mankind. That the Bible tells us that every person was made in the image of God, uniquely formed in their mother's womb from the moment of conception. And yet John 10.10 10 says that Satan, he's a thief who's come to destroy. John 8.44, that says he was a murderer from the beginning. 1 Peter 5, he likens him to a prowling lion for looking for somebody to devour. The goal is total destruction. And we saw that clearly again with the fate of the pigs, that, that these demons were not going to give up until this man killed himself. In reality, this same path is the goal and the pathway of sin to destroy, to defile the image of God in you, and to bring shame, not glory. You see, sin is power hungry. Sin never lets up. It never plateaus. It's never satisfied. And it always just wants to go a little deeper. And it always just wants to go a little darker, just a little bit at a time. And this is why there is no such thing as a sin that is safe. Man, we need to hear this. There's no such thing as compromise. There's no such thing as that this one area, I'm okay. I can handle it. There's no such thing as a harmless pornography habit where, where no one else knows and I have it under control and it's not affecting any of my relationships or my work. And, and the reality is it never stays there. It always just wants to consume just a little bit more, just go a little deeper, just go a little darker. 
That's why there's no such thing as a small gossip habit or a white lie or just a little greed. Because it all it wants to do is just chip away at you. Just chip away at the image of God in you to convince you it's your friend when in reality it's your enemy until there's no turning back. And so we ought to keep coming back to the well over and over again and reminding ourselves that where sin runs deep, grace is more. Where sin is powerful, it stands powerless before the transformational power of Jesus Christ. One of the darkest lies that people can buy into is that they have the power to change their own hearts. I have the power of what it takes to change. I just need to try a little bit harder. Or I just need to live somewhere else. Or I just need a new relationship. Or I just need to start a new job and I'll be okay. That's just what I need to turn things around and I'll be transformed. And, and that they are the reason for their own before and after. And lies like that always overpromise and underdeliver. And in contrast to one of the darkest lies, the brightest truth in the world on display in this passage is that Jesus has the power to change you. Do you believe this? It's simple to hear and it's simple to say, but do you believe deep down that Jesus has the power to change you? That you could be in a dark place or on your way, and then in an encounter with Jesus Christ, you can be clothed and in your right mind. Like, oh, that this truth would just be proclaimed from the mountaintops that the same Jesus in Mark 5 is alive today. He's the living God, and he loves to change people from the inside out. He loves to transform your desires. He loves to transform your actions. He loves to restore the image of God in you and bring new life. So that passage in John says the thief does come to kill and destroy, but Jesus has come so that you may have life. Do you believe this? Do you believe that could actually be true for you? Do you believe this could be true for your spouse? Do you believe this could be true for your child and your best friend and your neighbor? A few weeks ago, we read about the parable of the soils, and, and, and the first soil was a hardened heart where, where the word goes out and it gets snatched by the enemy and it never sinks in. And, and the horrifying reality is that many of our loved ones, that's the soil that they are in. But we said back then, do not lose hope to keep praying and storming the throne on their behalf, to keep scattering the seed as Jesus has called you to, because there is power in the name of Jesus to change hearts. And here, this is why it's great to preach through a book, because a chapter later, we see this come true, where the power of Satan is no match for the Son of the Most High, and where the power of Jesus changes, and a hardened heart that once rejected the seed is now receiving it and producing fruit. There's power in the name of Jesus. Church, do you believe this? Jesus overcomes evil, and Jesus changes people. And then third and finally, Jesus sends out witnesses. The herdsmen whose pigs just jumped off the cliff, they're understandably a little freaked out, right? A normal Tuesday herding pigs, and the whole herd just goes off the cliff. Like, understandably, they're just a little like, what was that? 
And based upon what they see, they go, they go back to the town and they tell people what's happened. And so this town was like, what was that? And so a lot of people from the town come out to the coast. And again, it's not the response that you'd expect. These people come and they see this man who was possessed, who was wild and out of control, who was a threat to himself and a threat to the whole village. And now this man is just sitting there on a rock and he's clothed and in his right mind. Calm, cool, and collected. And so you'd expect, you'd maybe even hope that they'd be thrilled he was back. That, that he's well, that the demons are gone, and he's been restored, and he can come back. But no. The result is fear. Just like the disciples last week, they, they remember how powerful this man was. And now they see someone who overpowered that power, and they're terrified. And just like last week, the reason, again, is just a lack of control. You can't control a man who can control the demons. Like, if Jesus can do that in an instant, right when he comes on shore, what will he do if he hangs around for a little while? So we want him gone. That's not the power we want around here. There's, there's a fear of change in the village, a fear of what the implications of what it would mean if Jesus stayed. And so it'd be easier just to have him leave and go on with life as normal. This is the tragedy of self-centeredness. The sad reality that is behind an unwillingness to let Jesus in because in some ways it's easier just to say no thanks and keep the status quo. And this response is still all too common. People who have a fear of letting Jesus in because of what it might mean for their lives. Listen, it's hard to change lifestyles. It's uncomfortable to think that things might need to shift or go away or be added on. And I think there are many who look upon Jesus, who see his power, who recognize his might, who knows he has the power to change and are drawn to that, but they will not believe in him because they don't want change. Even if their lives are miserable, at least they're miserable and predictable. We love knowing what's coming, even when things are miserable, but change is hard. Change is unpredictable. Change requires a letting go. Like, what if Jesus calls me out of this relationship if I follow him? What if he calls me out of this habit that I've had? What if my friends won't respect me or invite me out like they used to do? What if I can't consume media and entertainment the way I used to? What if I would need to change jobs even? And so this initial pull towards Jesus is suppressed by an unwillingness to change. That's what this village did. And it's this negative response of the village that Jesus um, goes and instead of taking the man with him, instead says, no, I need you to go be a witness. Let me read the last three verses again. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him, and he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. This ends, this passage finishes again in a way that you wouldn't expect especially if you've been with us this whole time in the Gospel of Mark. The demons request to be sent to the pigs, and Jesus says, okay, go to the pigs. 
But now a restored man requests, begs Jesus that he might be with him, and he says no. It's not what you'd expect. But rather, for the first time in Mark, Jesus tells someone to go and tell everyone what's happened to him. Remember, up to this point, Jesus has kept telling people, be silent. Don't go and tell them what I've done. Don't tell them of how I've healed you. But now he does the direct opposite. A couple reasons why. Um, Remember, the Decapolis is primarily Gentile. This man, in all likelihood, is not a Jew himself. And so um, him being sent into a non-Jewish town to spread the word would not bring about any confusion in the Decapolis as to who Jesus is. They weren't expecting a Messiah. They had no concept of a Messiah like the Jews did. And so there's no threat of a Jewish elite who would seek to kill him or seek to cut off his ministry or derail him before it was time. And so now Jesus goes, man, go at it. Go home and tell them what the Lord has done. Another self-reference to himself as divine. Tell them what the Lord has done. Go show off your transformation and let them know of the mercy that was poured out on you. Brother, go home. Maybe this is just my mind going by. I wonder what he went home to. I wonder if he had a wife and kids who had had just been looking out on the horizon, just hoping against hope that dad would come home. I wonder if he had friends just wondering that whatever happened to this guy, is he just gone forever? And the thought of him coming back, daddy coming home and going, I'm a changed man now. Jesus has come into my life. I'm back. And I'm sorry for everything that happened, but Jesus has changed me. I wonder what it was like when this man went home. Go tell everyone what the Lord has done. And this command is what Jesus would give all of his disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is the commission he gives to the church. We got a little sneak preview in Mark chapter 5. This is his commission to Grace Church. Go, let people see you that they might glorify me and be drawn to my power that they too may be saved. And while this is the call on every believer's life where we ought to be intentional about thinking through how we can be witnesses for Christ and in every area of our lives, this is a commission to new believers especially. There are those in our church that have, praise God, just recently come to faith. Like God is doing something here. We don't even know what he's really doing here, but he's doing something big. And people are coming to faith in Christ and that is pure grace and that's all the glory to the Father. But the reality is that when you are new in Christ, it is your best opportunity to make an impact. Because you've recently been changed. For those of us who've been saved for a longer period of time, it's harder for us. Partly because we're a little bored by it, unfortunately. But also because um, people have known us to be Christians for so long. And so you might hear that and go, no, like, that might not be what you think because we're supposed to be more mature and we're supposed to be more bold and we're supposed to know all the answers. We don't. But you as a new life in Christ are a transformation and an objective witness of a renewed heart that is far more easily seen amongst those in your life who knew you before God saved you. You find over and over again the most effective evangelists, the most passionate about the Lord, and the best witnesses are often those who have just been renewed. So let it shine. Live it out in front of them. Share with them. Proclaim to them the power of the name of Jesus.
This is the opportunity you've been given, and there is no place too dark, and there's no person too far gone that Jesus is not able to illuminate and restore. And he loves to do it through the witness of his people. Jesus overcomes evil. Jesus changes people. And then Jesus sends them out as witnesses. And following him will consist of a life that you won't expect. And it's all for the glory of his name and for the joy of his people. Let's pray. Father, as we sit here on the starting point of Holy Week, on this Palm Sunday, Father, we reawaken the truths of your gospel in us. Father, reawaken us, re-stir us for that which many of us have already known. Allow us to live a life as if we have just first begun to trust in you and let our life shine as a result. Give us courage, give us compassion, and give us strength. And Father, as for those in here who have not yet trusted their life into you, we just pray that your spirit would do work. Father, we pray that the word will go out and you will be faithful to bring it home in their hearts. And Father, we pray that you do it for your name's sake. And it's in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen. Please stand and join us in worship.